Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Terry. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, as Pastor James said. I'm really uh, grateful we could gather together today. We are, um, I believe, in a section of Scripture today that is really timely, is really relevant for us. Um, This is going to be the uh, last in our series before we jump into Advent coming up. And um, our series in Romans has been called From Doctrine to Desire. And we try to remind you of what our goal is in there is to look at sound biblical doctrine, to, to, to see it, to understand it, to then allow it to transform us, to renew our minds, to revolutionize the very desires of our hearts and ultimately change the way we live, right? That, that's our, that's our, our goal. Well, today we're going to be in Romans 8, uh, second part of it. We did the first part of it last week, verses 18 through 39, and we're going to be talking about having a God-shaped perspective, if you're a note taker, a God-shaped perspective. And uh, I want to set the sort of the stage for uh, digging into our passage today. Some of you may know that I'm working on a degree in ethics. And as we've been looking through the history of like moral systems, this past week we we were talking about Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, If you had some philosophy in college, you may recognize that name, uh, or you may recognize that name otherwise. But in class, we were talking about how Nietzsche, and by the way, this is a, a t-shirt design. You can, you can buy t-shirts about Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, this is a t-shirt design that someone made kind of to encapsulate or capture um, a little illustration that Nietzsche wrote called The Madman. And we were talking about in class today how Nietzsche is the philosopher whose ideas are really the most prominent in, in culture. We live in a world filled with self-assertion. Right, the pursuit of power, people posturing their morality over other people's morality, all while denying the existence of actual objective morality at all. It's a really bizarre thing that we see. We've rejected the God who is really there, and so we've set up ourselves in the place of God. And Nietzsche would be quite proud of us. Right? Uh, he, he thought that we had killed God back in his day. In other words, he, he didn't believe in God, but he viewed the false notion of God, according to him, as being obsolete. He saw God as obsolete. And I want to, um, I want to, to read some of the, his illustration called The Madman. And I want you to see that Nietzsche knew where this supposed death of God would lead us into this dark world. Now, he embraced this dark world, but I want you to see if this doesn't describe the so-called death of God that he wrote about in 1882, right, 140 years ago. Listen to this. He says, and it's just going to be a picture, so you'll have to listen. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? 
Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What we were doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as of, the, as of yet the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as of yet the divine decomposition? God's decomposed too. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche, again, wrote that in 1882. And he recognized back then that people probably weren't ready to hear what he had to say, but I think today we can recognize that's at our doorstep. That's where we live. Well, in the words of the great Francis Schaeffer, in light of living in that world that Nietzsche described, how then should we live? How should we live? Um, what can possibly sustain us during these times? Well, thankfully, the God who is really not dead, he's actually quite alive, has written a book for us to know how to live in these times. And if you're a note taker, the first thing I want us to see as we get, start to walk through our passage here is the idea of looking to God in the darkness. In this present age of darkness, this is the first step, to look to God. Um, so let's begin walking through our passage today. First, I want us to just look at the first part of the first verse, kind of part A of verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Now let's, let's pause. There's a very solid point being made even in the first half of the first verse by Paul. I don't want us to slide over and, and miss it. Paul's saying that the present sufferings for his readers, then and now, are very real. They're real. Now, I want you to consider who's writing this. This is the Apostle Paul. He recounted his sufferings in several places, but one of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And um, take a look at what he says. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a, day, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? This doesn't even mention other things that happened to Paul about like being abandoned by his closest friends, 
about being imprisoned on multiple occasions. The fact that this very letter, the book of Romans, is written while Paul is under arrest. Right? He doesn't mention those things. So Christians can and do recognize our suffering. Our sufferings are not an illusion. They are real. They are real. We don't deny the harsh realities of life. In fact, do you realize that Christians are the ultimate realists? We're, the ulti- we're, we're, we're accused of being fanciful. We're the ultimate realists. We have legitimate categories called good and evil. Right? We can recognize the reality of both. We can look at evil and call it exactly what it is. This is one reason that the world rejects the message of, of Jesus and often rejects us because of that. That's probably the biggest reason. We rightly recognize that certain things actually are objectively good. Certain things are evil. The, the, the reason people rejected Jesus then is the reason people reject Jesus now. Um, we can look at the troubles of this world caused by evil and acknowledge it for what it is. This world is fallen from its original glory. You know, every, every human being recognizes that something's just not right. There's this thing in the back of their mind, something that swells up in our hearts. And we look at things around us, we look at our own lives like, you know what? Man, this thing is broken. And when people realize that, that's true. They're right. This thing is broken. This is not God's original design. This is not how the earth was created. It is in a fallen state. And Christians can look at that and, and truly acknowledge, yes, it's broken. And not only can we acknowledge it in some vague way, we know why it's broken. We know, why, we, we know what happened. We can really look at the hardships of life and, and, and say, you know what? It's hard. It's hard. Life is, is hard. The world is broken. It's the world in which we live. Well, let's continue in, in the second part of verse 18. And so we, we, I want us to see both sides, that Christians see both sides of the reality. Look at the whole of verse 18. He says, again, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be Revealed to us. Now, this is the other side that Christians are realists about. We are not nihilists. We are not without hope, in other words. Paul is saying that as glum as this present darkness may be, as difficult as it is, it is a fact of the future that when we see God, we look Jesus face to face, we see what He has in store for us, we will say unanimously with Paul, our suffering was not even worth comparing to the glory that we see. Christians are realists. We see both. We see both. So the disciples of Jesus, we who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, can be, can be full realists. Now listen, this is me preaching to myself. If we are fully realists as Christians, we should be optimists. If you know me, you know I'm a glass half empty kind of guy by nature, right? But if I'm going to embrace the gospel, the truth about what Jesus says about my future, I should be an optimist. Because we've been told the future by the Lord Jesus who holds the future in His hands. Have we not? So we see both. Let's pick up verse 19. We'll continue to kind of uh, to go work through our passage. We'll pick up the pace. We've laid a firm foundation now. We see both the hardship and what Jesus has in store. Verses 19 through 25 say this. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul's saying that we can know the future and we can live firmly in the present despite its troubles. The troubles are real, but we wait patiently for Jesus to return and make all things new. We wait patiently because we know that Jesus is good for His Word. If I, if I had, how, how do we know? How do we know that God is good for His Word? If I had several hours this morning, I could recount the thousands of years of Old Testament records about God's faithfulness to His people. I could recount the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah given hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus, which Jesus fulfilled to the minutest detail. We could talk about the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus' own prophecy of His death, burial, and resurrection, all fulfilled. We could point to Jesus' promise to His first disciples that He would not leave them as orphans, but that when He returned to the Father, He would send the precious Holy Spirit to not only be with them, but to be in them. Again, promise kept by Jesus. God keeps His Word. Well, if He said that He would keep His people, and He did. If He said He would send the Messiah, and He did. We'll begin celebrating that next week at Advent, right? It's a fact of history. The Messiah came. We celebrate. That's the Advent. He said He would fulfill prophecies in His life and ministry. He did. He said He'd die in our place, and He did. He said He'd rise from the grave, and He did. He said He'd send the Holy Spirit, and He did. Well, then if He says He will return, He will, <laughs> right? He will. So we wait patiently. Now, while we wait, we're realists. Our hearts cry out, Lord, how much longer? Anybody else feel like that besides me? Can you please rescue me from this, from this world and honestly from myself? I would love to stop sinning. I would love to stop hurting people. I would love to stop hurting the heart of God. Lord, rescue me. How much longer, before Father, before you send back Jesus? to rescue us. Well, remember, why is God waiting so long? While we wait, let's have a proper perspective, a God-shaped perspective. 2 Peter 3, 9 makes it pretty clear. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Okay, this is God's timetable, not ours, is what Peter's saying. But God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's a reason God is delaying. From our perspective, there's, there's a delay, right? So what do we do? In the meantime, we wait patiently. 
knowing that God is good for his word. And we have a privilege and a duty to man the lifeboats. Let's take as many people with us as we can. Let's prepare as many people as we can to meet Jesus face to face because he is returning. Either, either, listen, there's a 100% chance of one of two things happening first. Either you and I will die and we meet Jesus. Or Jesus returns before we die and we meet Jesus, right? So let's prepare one another and others to meet Jesus. Well, that's sort of what our posture should be during this present dark time. But I want us to keep reading to look at God's posture during this time because there's great news. God is working even right. Even though it seems dark, man, God is working. I want us to look at God's work in the darkness. God's work in the darkness, if you're a note taker. Look at me with um, just the, the, the initial of verse 26 here. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now let's pause, let's, let's pause right there. This is God's posture toward us in the darkness. We do not walk these streets alone. We do not walk this life on our own power. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us when? Now, <laughs> anybody feel weak besides me? Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, I, I, I don't want you to, um, to miss what's being said. This is a really powerful thing. Because we, we were, as Christians, if, particularly if you've grown up in church, you're used to hearing about the person of the Holy Spirit. But let's not forget who He is. Right, let's, let's be reminded that this is the same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's mentioned in Genesis 1 where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was, was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there are some commentators who give reasons to think that it was the activity of the Spirit hovering there that actually caused what happened next, where God said, Let there be light, and there was. Well, I don't know about that, but it could be. But I do know the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is involved in the creation of everything that we see and don't see. That's the same Holy Spirit that's available to help us in our weakness. He is the same Holy Spirit who empowered the Old Testament prophets. He is the same Holy Spirit who Jesus Himself said, had anointed him. Jesus said the Holy Spirit had anointed him. You remember in the book of Mark where Jesus enters the temple. They hand him the Isaiah scroll, right? Jesus stands up and reads the Isaiah scroll and he says, he, and later he says this was him referring to himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the same Holy Spirit that's available to help us in our weakness. This is the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Right, And we read last week in verse 11 of Romans 8, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, mind-blowing right there. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the Holy Spirit who is available to help us in our weakness. So let me, let me ask you, church, is He sufficient to the task to help us in our weakness? Yes, <laughs> right? Uh, if, if you don't recognize that, yes, He is, go back later, rewind it on YouTube, and recount who the Holy Spirit is. Let us have confidence in God is the point. Paul said the Holy Spirit is available to help us in our weakness. So let's keep reading, beginning in the second half of verse 26, to see one way that the Holy Spirit of God helps us. He says, Paul says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, let's, um, that's kind of convoluted. Let's unpack that a little bit. Have you ever been stuck in a situation you don't even know how to pray about it? You're like, Lord, I, I don't know what to pray right now. I'm going to pray for your will. I, I'm at a loss. I do not know how to pray. You know, there's so many variables I, I don't even know what to ask God for, really. <laughs> uh, we talked last week about uh, trying and MCs trying to discern, know the will of God. Well, you, you might be in a spot um, that's so tough, you don't even know what deliverance would look like. Like, Lord, I want to be delivered. I can't even picture that in my mind. I don't, I don't know what that is, but... Um, I can't even put into words to you how to express the deliverance I'm looking for because I don't know what that looks like. Anybody been there, <laughs> right? Well, there's an, this is an amazing place where the Holy Spirit knows the groaning of our hearts, it says. The, the Scripture just told that. And being God, He knows the heart of God. So He prays for us according to the will of God. That is, the Spirit prays to the Father on our behalf. That is incredible. When I don't know how to pray to the Father, the Spirit of God knows how to pray. He knows my, the Spirit of God knows my heart. I can't really put it into words like what I'm feeling and, and, and what, I, what I need from God. The Spirit of God speaks to the Father, God the Father on our behalf. This is the fact that the Spirit of God Himself prays for me when I don't know how to pray is a great comfort for me. I, I hope it is for you. If you don't know the comfort of the Spirit of God praying on your behalf, I, I pray that for you. I, I, I want you to know God in that way. When you're down on your face, you got your face in the couch pillows and they're wet from your tears and you're just torn up inside and you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God is praying for you right then. That's an incredible truth that I want us to get a hold of uh, today. Um, I want us to, to, to read this next section as, as a whole because unfortunately it's, it's often split up, but I think we need to take verses 28 through 30 as a chunk. Uh, begin in 28 with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Pastor James and I were talking about before the service. This is something that we repeat 
all the time, man. I need to hear this all the time, right? Um, and then this next section, we repeat all the time. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the reason I want us to read them together so we can have the context. First, in, in 28 and 29, again, these are very, it's a very familiar promise from God, uh, one that I hang my heart on <laughs> uh, quite frequently. I, I cling to that. I, I, I hold on to that. My, my, again, it's like a hook with my, with my heart on it. I, I, I need to be reminded that God is, is working these things. And, and maybe you, you remind yourself of that passage too. But I want you to notice this morning, there's a very clear caveat that Paul gives. There's a conditional that Paul puts in there. Did, did you see it? God works all things for the good of whom? Those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And I want to point this out because I hear lots of people who don't belong to Jesus, who don't love God, and they approach this verse in like a nonchalant way. Uh, oh, well, you know, I, I know I've made a wreck of my life. I know I've hurt lots of people, but, you know, everything works for the good. And, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am right now if, if I hadn't made those mistakes. So I really would, I wouldn't change a thing. You ever hear that? You ever think that? I wouldn't be where I am right now if I hadn't, if I hadn't you know, had that time of rebellion against God or, or, or whatever. Um, listen, that's a dangerously wrong idea. I'll just be frank with you. That's a dangerously wrong idea. First, on a practical level, can we agree that it's never a good thing to sin? Sin is never good, like ever. Even if God, if you repent and God redeems your sin, delivers you from it, and then works through, good through that, it was bad for you to sin, right? Sin is always against God, right? So we can't say, I'm really glad I sinned. No, <laughs> don't, don't, don't think that. It's, it's not as though you're better because you sinned. No, sin always offends the righteous heart of God. Um, in fact, sin makes things worse, do you realize? Just go back and read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. You'll find out sin makes things worse. Now, God's bigger than sin. He can redeem your sinful lifestyle when you repent and turn to Him. Sin always makes things worse than they needed to be. Okay? So, so don't, don't think that. Secondly, uh, let's let the passage speak for itself. This passage promises us that all things work for our good, but it does not apply to all people everywhere. That Just read it again. It's a promise to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is a limitation. You may be uncomfortable with, with that sort of thing. It's the same kind of limitation back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where we read about the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But only to those who believe, right? It's the same sort of of limitation, there are benefits and privileges, like, like salvation-related benefits and privileges that come with being a child of God that are not available to those who are not children of God. These are, these are promises 
to the children of God. Um, so salvation is available for all. It's only applied to those in Christ Jesus, right? The, the idea that God would works all things for the good is like just true. But specifically, this promise is for those who, are, who, who love God and are called according to His purpose. So it applies only to followers of Jesus, but the good news is apply it does. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can absolutely count on the fact that this is a benefit. This is a, a blessing that Jesus gives to you. This is tremendously good news. Here's why. Sin does not have the last word in my life. That's what that means. It means my past failures, my past sins do not define me. The past hurts Sins that people did against me do not define me. Jesus defines me. And he says I'm his, <laughs> right? That is amazing news that we really need to, need to get a hold of. Jesus says I'm his uh, both right now and forever. So let's keep that in mind then when we read verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God or um all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That word for, at the beginning of verse 29, is saying because of. <laughs> the things that I just talked about in verses uh, 28 is the reason I'm saying these things in 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, etc. That word for is important. Paul's saying the reason we can know that God works all things for our good is because those who he foreknew, he also predestined, etc. That's why we can know that things work for our good. Now, there's lots of debate among Christian groups about other implications related to these two verses, and those are important, and we can talk about them at some time. But this morning, I want us to be focused on the, the context. Why Paul is saying that right here where he did. Um, in context, the point that Paul is making is that salvation is all of God, and what God begins, God finishes. This is what Paul is saying. He's intentionally pointing out to remember the context overall of the book of Romans. Paul is writing this to Jewish Christians in light of non-Jewish uh, Christians now being brought into the family of God. And he's telling them, listen, it's God who saves. <laughs> not your Levitical law keeping, not your ethnicity, not where you were born. It is God who saves. So stop condemning those around you and heaping laws upon them the Hebrew law, again, as we read last week, weakened by the flesh, cannot save you. It is God who saves. And Paul says that when God redeems a person, they are redeemed indeed. Again, this is why last week we heard Paul say, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And here Paul is simply saying that God is the beginning and ending of salvation. It is God who draws. It is God who saves. 
It is God who sanctifies. And Paul is saying, out, saying now that because that's true, it is this same saving God who, will, who secures our souls for eternity that holds us in this present darkness. That's what he's saying. In other words, you are as secure in God during this present darkness as you are with Him forever. Do you get that? Follower of Jesus, you may be like, I know that, I know, like, like once I, I, I go to heaven, I'm in heaven, it's all good, and, and I'm with God, and I, man, I'm in, I'm in the presence of the Savior. And Paul's saying, well, this same God who completes what He starts is with you right now. You're as secure in Him, even though the, the world seems like it's spinning and falling apart and out of control, it is not. It is not. This is, what, this is, this is Paul's message, and I, and I want us to see it, that, that God's faithful, faithfulness for eternity is exactly the same as God's faithfulness right now. Um, so God's faithfulness, and if you're a note taker, I want us to look at God's faithfulness as our anchor. We're just going to walk through this last section to close. Kind of have, Paul's worked through all this, and Paul asks, he gives his commentary on what we've just talked about. In verse 31, what shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the point. This is Paul's closing argument, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, um, this present age we live in is dark. But what are we talking about here? If God himself is for us, what else do we want? Like, if God has given us Jesus himself, and he has, will he withhold any good thing from us? No. <laughs> we can trust that he will indeed supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Like we can know that. And we can know that because he's already given us the greatest possible thing. Himself. Right? Himself. So let's close out with the last section here. Lean in close. Pay attention here because I believe, I believe that God wants you to hear his word right here. Let's read verses 33 through the end of the chapter there at 39. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's, let's pause for a second. I was going to read it as a chunk, but I just want to remind you of, the, of what we're dealing with here. We're in a world that is clearly broken. Our individual lives may be clearly broken or maybe mending a little bit now or maybe it's going to be broken soon and we don't know it yet. In spite of any of those things which we recognize are real, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, 
or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So again, let's pause again. Paul's recognizing martyrdom is a real thing in his day. It's a real thing right now in many parts of the world. But he says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What were all these things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should cause a huge sigh of relief in your soul. Again, our world, maybe our lives seem to be spiraling out of control. They are not. God is God. He is not dead, (laughs) right? Uh, Nietzsche's madman really was mad. You can't get rid of God if you tried. And disciple of Jesus, God is with you. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Let every politician be a liar. God is true, right? Let all the countries and corporations be corrupt. God is righteous. Though the foundations seem to be shaking, God is immovable. God is certain. God is unfailing. And He's proven it throughout all of history. He's good for His Word. God is God. If you're in Jesus, you're His. Right? Rest and rejoice in that fact that you belong to the Savior.